Okay, everybody, welcome to another episode of The Big Questions with Big John. I'm your host, Big John. You should be getting used to that by now. And today we have another wonderful guest that we'd like to talk to. He's here to talk to us, uh, obviously. Let me introduce him right now. His name is Joe Templin. And let me give you his bio, Joe Templin. And I love this bio, actually, Joe. Joe Templin is a reformed physicist, financial planner, startup founder, and autodidactic polymath. Oh, man, it's a good thing I'm Greek. I understand half those words. And he's best described as a Swiss army knife. Uh, Joe Templin has invested the past two and a half plus decades of his life to helping others reach their financial potential as a planner, trainer, mentor, and creator. Uh, His book, Everyday Excellence, is available on Amazon.com. There you go. Very good marketer, holds it up on cue. Uh, His book, Everyday Excellence, uh, can be found on Amazon.com. And the companion site for the book, which you should also uh, visit, is EverydayExcellence.com. And there's a dash between the everyday and the excellence. Uh, Everybody, welcome to Joe Templin. John, I am so glad to be here, my friend. We're going to have some fun. Oh, good. I, 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 that's the type of conversation I like fun, informative, and maybe we all walk away with a smile and a little bit extra knowledge at the end of the, at the end of the broadcast. So that's pretty good. All right. So let's, let's just start right at the beginning. Tell me about your background a little bit and how does one acquire the categorization of an autodidactic polymath? So that will come out as I talk about the meandering journey that is my life. Okay. So uh, as background, grew up in upstate rural New York. My mom was a nun. Yes, my mom was a nun. My dad was army, uh, then um, founded a consulting group. I'm one of six kids, um, second out of six. So I very obviously have second son syndrome. And as I said, I grew up in a small town. We didn't even have a traffic light until after I went to grad school. Wow. Uh, that traffic light is on the corner where the general store and the post office and one of the churches is, and it flashes after 5 p.m. still to this day. <laughs> so that's what I grew up with. Uh, farm community, as I said, I was severely, severely asthmatic as a child. Uh, so I was more of an uh, athlete than an athlete. At eight years old, I told my mom I wanted to learn everything there was to learn. So she said, better get to work. There's the encyclopedias. So I did. I read the entire encyclopedia. Uh, At 10, I actually died. I got better, obviously. Uh, At 13, I started college because my parents said 12 was too young. And right around that time, I started doing Taekwondo, ended up ultimately winning an international championship. Hmm. Um, Went to, I worked for the Department of Defense while in graduate school. Uh, ended up doing some intel work after that for a while, went to financial planning, uh, been writing all along the way. And so that's where Everyday Excellence really came out from, from my uh, various experiences and different interests in going down the rabbit hole, whether it was behavioral economics, psychology, psychiatry, uh, music, art, what have you. But I do say that I'm an autodidactic polymath as opposed to a Renaissance man because I cannot draw a straight line with a ruler. That <laughs> is one of my biggest flaws right there. I have other flaws, obviously. Right, right. But well, you that's know, a big one. It's, it's interesting because a lot of what you said I find personally relatable, to be honest with you. I, I, I couldn't draw a straight line with a ruler. 
I'm I'm one of the few clinically tone deaf people on the planet. I think I, I so things like music and art are things that I've always admired, but escaped me to some great extent. Yeah, people who can like take a piece of paper and like just create something gorgeous. I'm like, how do you do that? I agree it's with just you. Amazing. Or who's just sit at a piano or with a guitar and can actually make something pleasant that most people don't cover. Yeah, it doesn't ears. sound like, you know, a cat being strangled. <laughs> yeah, it, does, like it doesn't sound like any sort of caterwauling. Yeah, absolutely. But um, I, I, I do like some of the things you just pointed out there that uh, in, in my own background is people can't understand how I ended up at what I'm doing myself, you know, so I started out in, uh, my, in college being a biologist. And I got a degree in biology, but then, you know, numbers interested me. So I, I went into population genetics and that transformed into computer science and that transformed into data science and that transformed into marketing. Next thing you know, I'm doing a show. So I've always been one of those people. I don't consider myself a polymath necessarily, but um, I've always said if YouTube existed when I was college age, I probably would have never gone to college because I find myself learning so much more <clears throat> by following my interests and then just taking advantage of what's out there, YouTube and whatnot. <clears throat> well, me. that's the entire purpose of education is to light a fire inside you and to pursue what interests you. I mean, Steve Jobs dropped out of college and took a calligraphy class and that mm -hmm. ultimately led to the really cool fonts for uh, the Macintosh. Yeah. And he said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. It's only looking back. And so one of the analogies that I use, because I have teenage boys, is that life is like a giant video game. And we're all trying to get to the castle and save the princess and get the gold and all that. But there's going to be these side quests along the way. I mean, you might have to go into the tavern and talk to the weird old man. That's me. You can get advice. <laughs> you might have to go do a side gig to get some gold, to get some additional resources. That's like taking the job that you don't necessarily right. like, but you're going to get something out of it as long as you're looking for it. And if you have an idea of what your quest is, and over time, that becomes clearer and clearer as long as you're working on yourself and uh, trying to improve yourself, you get more clarity around that. But as long as you're doing that, as you do these different projects and these side quests and these other things, it's giving you allies, resources, uh, uh, skills, all these different things that ultimately you can deploy to be more successful and ultimately better in your main job of being you. Hmm. That is interesting. I, I, you know, I recently interviewed... Um a pair of moms, they call themselves anarchist moms, and they were very much proponents of what they call unschooling, which was to move away from the traditional classroom and the, the confines of, of strict um, sequential instruction. I, if I don't, you know, I don't want to put too much uh, paraphrasing on their beliefs, but it kind of sounds similar to what you're, you're saying, right? Like, um, you got to work on yourself, you have to understand what you enjoy and don't enjoy learning. And really, it's the process of learning rather than any rote memorization or or just regurgitation of facts that actually right. is what and leads having to knowledge, some right? rote memorization is important. You got to know, you know, your multiplication table to be right. able to do applied physics. So you've got to have your basics down, whether it's your scales as a musician, your basic right. techniques as a martial artist, 
you know, understanding how to bake to be on Cake Boss, whatever it is. Right. But then you need to pursue what your passion is. For example, Arnold Schwarzenegger loved weightlifting. He had this goal of being Mr. Universe. It like totally drove him. So right. he was operating out of a position with love with this. And so he learned about biochemistry and he, you know, lift in the morning, work construction for 12 hours, go work out again, and then go take classes so that he could learn to speak and move properly and all that sort of stuff. So if you've got this burning desire, this need to understand in this particular space, explore it because that might not be ultimately what you do with your life, but the mindset and the capabilities and the desire and the capacity to learn and to hyper-focus if need be that you're developing in that space could lead you to something else because it was watching Star Wars as a kid when it first came out that gave me my fascination with lasers, which led me to be an applied physicist to doing research on high energy optics for the government. Hmm. And it was a lot of the concepts that I had there that I then exported over into finance combined with some of my background in martial arts. So synthetic um, knowledge, synthetic creativity from these different deep dive areas that you go to. So being able to go outside and explore is actually a good thing. My mom was a high school or college biology professor after she was done being a nun, uh, you know, when she was a mom. And so she like encouraged this fascination. She gave us the bug jug. She's the one who taught us to distill alcohol <laughs> and to outwear a car in my life. No, come on, Laura. There we go. Um, and, you know, all these other things. And my mom's favorite saying was the old Mark Twain saying of never let school interfere with your education. Right. And so we, she encouraged the curiosity and this fascination. And so my older brother is a history uh, individual, reenactor and all that works down in Colonial Williamsburg. My sisters were biologists. I ended up being a physicist and then going into finance. So it doesn't matter what you're going to do as long as you are doing it because you truly love it and you're developing excellence around that, which then is sort of like discipline. It spills over into other areas. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. You know, and it's it, I, I have a smile on my face because in relating your story, I, I almost hear my own story and I, and I have such a personal um, I, I think I, told, I was a biologist. And I started working as, and I met my wife at a um, biotech company, small bio, biotech company in Long Island. And I went from writing code for biological assay readers to Wall Street. And uh, I'll never forget it because I was one of those people who grew up, ah, money is evil. It's the root of all evil, you know, that whole thing. Um, but the realities of being engaged and having to earn for a family and everything set in. So I said, I have to, you know, I love what I'm doing, but I have to look at something to increase my income. So I applied for a job as a coder, uh, for foreign exchange trading on wall street. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked. I was very fortunate. The firm that I worked with, it doesn't exist anymore. got bought up by Deutsche Bank, but it was a uh, banker's trust. When I went in for my, it took them a year and a half to hire me folks. Yeah. It takes a year and a half sometimes, you know, with the one company yeah. going back for one interview after another. And they just kept giving me uh, brain teasers, not one question about finance, not one question about coding. It was always like, Oh, here's a puzzle. It's eight knobs, figure out what to do with it. And then they leave you alone and come back two hours later. 
You know what I mean? And it was that yeah, sort so of innovative approach, right? Think. Exactly. And it always so, stuck with me that it was more important to them, which I find refreshing and rare in American business, quite honestly. It was more important for them to understand how somebody thinks as opposed to what remedial task can I put them in right now? Now, to your point, there is, there is the need for memorization. There is the need for knowing your basics. There is the need of getting the basic job done. Yeah, but if honestly, you couldn't code, they wouldn't have brought you in. Exactly. So they test that a little bit to see if you can do that. Right. But then they wanted to see where the beyond capabilities is, how you think, because 50% right. of what you learn in college is going to be obsolete within a handful of years. Yeah, because, right. And I just viewed, to your point, I viewed things like memorization and the basics as tools of learning, not learning itself. So um, uh, I, I loved it because at one point, I, for example, the people who hired me then said, you know what, we've done this study and we realized chess grandmasters and above, we want to hire those people, even if they don't know a thing. And those were the folks they hired, sometimes couldn't speak a lick of English in an English speaking company. Yep that wrote all the fancy derivatives. They wrote all the Because fancy... it was pattern recognition. Exactly. And yep. that was one of the things that when I was doing Intel, my um, director sat me down and was talking with me. And he's like, how you know, do I learn to think like you? Because you right. can just see this. You can find the signal and the noise and all this. I'm like, well, you know, do 20 years of you know being a physicist and 30 years worth of, you know, full contact martial arts and, you know, uh, you know, study this and, you know, this, and I laid it out and he's like, yeah, okay, we're just going to like, keep using <laughs> you. yeah, it's, funny. it's that capability yeah. to recognize stuff like that, that is a specialized skill and can be developed beyond the walls of the normal classroom. You know, that's, that's true. Like, uh, you know, for example, you talked about the signal and the noise. I always kind of like, how did someone like Benford ever figure out like this pattern of repeating numbers by looking at zip codes or something like that, right? It's like, I, <laughs> you know, and, and you sit there and you say like, who or what created such genius? You know what I mean? Because it's nothing that's taught, right? It's, it, it's right. not that he sat with someone and said, this or is how it's to do this. self-taught in a lot of ways. There's some yeah. uh, capacity and then they explore different things and they learn other ideas that get brought on in. So as I said, I'm a special needs parent. My oldest son is Asperger's and my youngest one is ADHD and autistic. And they just look at the world very differently. Yeah. And so it is, they can have incredibly deep hyper-focus. I mean, like my youngest son, when he was like eight years old, could tell you literally everything about the Titanic, everything. <laughs> and he also, had just this almost photographic knowledge of yep. numbers. Uh, for example, the school would do a penny harvest where they'd collect money for charity. And he was looking at the board at one of the schools. And he's like, no, that's not right. That school got blah, 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 blah. And the principal calls the other principal and was like, yeah, Colin's correct. Hmm. So it is, you know, non-neuronormal, the neurodivergent, is actually much more valuable in the coming world as opposed to the assembly line world that we're, yeah. we've been coming out of for the past and, 20 years. And you know, I'll smile again because that's another thing we have in common. I'm also the parent of a, of a son with autism uh, too. So I, I certainly can relate to what you just said, you know, where um, my son at four, you know, and he's 
pretty much, he's not, he's a little more severe than Asperger's. Um, he's um, considered to be severely autistic, but okay. um, he's 24. He's, he's fairly adjusted in life. You know, he's, he's barely verbal, um, meaning mm -hmm. he can tell you his desires, but he, he can't have a conversation with you, so to speak, at least not verbally. And um, as, as a young man, we, I was awed one day when I took him to the park and he was the master of balance. He could ride skateboards, be on uh, inline skates, a uh, bicycle, like at four, he was just wheeling a little total body awareness, total awesome. body awareness and proprioceptic abilities and sensory, you know, and one day we took him to a closed and, you know, in New York city, you have the closed playgrounds, you know, concrete jungle type of thing surrounded yep. by fence. So we said, Oh, that's a safe place for him to, to ride his bike. Cause he's not going to interfere with anybody else. Nobody will interfere with him. It kind of shuts out the noise that he was sensitive to things like that. And for the life of me, my wife and I were amazed. It was almost miraculous. He would ride his bike with his eyes closed, not open them once and never hit anything while going full speed. And we decided it was that as he was entering the playground, he took a visual picture of what was there and then closed his eyes. And when I mean he scared the crap out of us by coming within this much of, say, a brick wall and then as soon, with his eyes closed. And then as yep. soon as he got there, he'd veer off. Because he knew exactly what he was he knew doing. exactly where and he was. I, yeah. uh, Temple Grandin talked about something similar in that um, with a neuronormal, we build archetypes. So for us, like a, a church is like a pointy thing. It's got a cross on the top. It's got a couple of windows. And to us, that's a church. Whereas somebody on the autism spectrum, a lot of them, not all of them, because they're all unique, but they can't picture a generic church. They literally build or memorize one that they've actually seen. Yes. And that's why uh, some of these artists can like look at something once and then recreate it with their drawings or things like that. So what it sounds like is that your son actually took a almost a visual scan, put it in his head and with his incredible muscle awareness and body awareness, was able to put himself within that space and know exactly yeah. where he was going and how fast. Yeah, it, and it, so he constructed this, and so he didn't need the visual anymore because he knew exactly where and when he was in that space. Yeah, and and it's just um, awe-inspiring in some ways because it's something that I'm not capable of doing in the least. And um, as he's grown up, I mean, he's shown us other abilities too. Now, I don't want to make it sound like he has a superpower that every person with autism has a superpower because that's definitely well, not the my, case. my kid says he's a mutant and autism is his <laughs> you know, special yeah. gift. So. Uh, so yeah, no, and that's a very healthy way of looking at it. Um, but um, just to get back more now to your your book and your and your what you, I love this concept of a reformed physicist in what sense are you reformed I mean I understand the physicist part of the yeah. description but but in what sense do you consider yourself a reformed physicist so like I you know my mom the nun growing up Catholic I've got friends who call themselves reformed Catholics hmm. yet the instant that somebody says you know one of the lines from church they snap back into it mm. and they subconsciously say, you know, peace be with you and also with you. Okay. Right. And it, it, it's just because of growing up and, you know, doing the Catholic calisthenics, you know, stand, sit, you know, it's muscle memory, sit, you know, basically. Yeah. Or, you know, getting smacked by the nuns <laughs> like I did because, you know, grew up with them. So it's ingrained in your system. So it's not what you do on a regular basis, 
but it's still inside you. Hmm. So as physicists, we learn to ask questions and solve problems. So do I do that in terms of using um, you know, Lagrangian equations and calculating things like that? No, but it's still part of me. So I look and I ask questions. And as a physicist, the only people who took more mathematics than us were mathematicians. And so there was a huge component of that that's still ingrained in me a lot of ways. And one of the biggest lessons from mathematics is that in any situation, there are zero, one, or an infinite number of potential solutions to a problem. And to go, if there's no or only one, that means that you haven't expanded the parameters to enough dimensions. You're not thinking broadly enough mm. to see other potential solutions. And so in terms of business consulting, this comes into play a lot of ways. Mm. When somebody tells me something's impossible, to me that just means one, you're lazy, or two, challenge accepted. Right. I got you. That's an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, <clears throat> mathematically, I kind of get what you're saying. And, but I never really uh, sort of framed it as zero, one, or infinite. You know, I mean, as you were speaking, it made perfect sense to me. Sure. But I guess it, I never really sat down and thought of it because um, I don't know. Is it a matter of changing in that sense? I guess it's a matter of changing your perception of what's valid, right? Because I've always been struck of is, is math in itself pure and we're just discovering it? Or is it a construct of the human mind, you know? And I'm not sure which one of the two it is because I could find it is both, right? It's our interpretation of the rules because we're on a base 10 system because we have, mm. you know, 10 fingers and toes. Well, not everyone uses their toes to count too. Right. But so if we were like, you know, lizard people and we had four digits per hand, we would probably be existing in a base eight world. So the rules of mathematics would be stated somewhat differently, but they would still exist and be saying right. the same sort of things. We might be looking in a different part of the visual of the spectrum because we see along the electromagnetic spectrum from roughly 400 to a little over 700 nanometers, red to purple. Right. But if we grew up on a planet with a different star, so it was emitting different light, colored light, we would see a different part of the spectrum. So we would see the world differently than humans do. So this is one of the things that, yes, there's probably aliens out there. I know I haven't met any. But if we can shift our perspective and question our biases and look at our own reticular activation system, our filters that we're using, and develop more metacognitive awareness, we can look at how we're looking at things and think about how we think and change that, which then allows us to be able to come up with some pretty innovative solutions. Yeah, <clears throat> but I, I agree with you, but I was even thinking of these marvelous cases, even in physics say where um, the math predicted the existence of say, uh, uh, quantum elements, right? And, and how did they figure that out? Well, the square root, you know, I'm just making up a number. The square root of 25 is five, but it's also minus five. And in the context of this equation, that means we have to have a particle spinning one way and then a particle spinning in the other, even though the negative five, for lack of a better term, hasn't been discovered yet. So we expect it. And, and then there's and cases- Because we can't even see it. So that's like the whole world of positrons and you know right. antimatter and all that. And so 
But let's take a step back. Mm. Okay. Let's look at it from an Eastern perspective as opposed to a Western perspective. Fair enough. No, everything's balanced. For every darkness, there's light. For every yin, there's yang, male, mm -hmm. female. So if we've got existence, then logically it would make sense if there was an equal and balanced non-existence, an anti-force, an mm -hmm. anti-life. So, okay, if that's the way that it is, what would that look like? And by changing the parameters, the box that we're thinking in, or our assumptions, we can have some of these fights of flights of fancy that then occur in art and music and writing and all these other spaces. Maybe it doesn't manifest itself in the physical world yet, because right. how long did it take for us to be able to understand, you know, how rare earth elements work in terms of uh, the, how their electrons interact as opposed to traditional metals? I mean, that was really not even being explored until the 1950s. Silicon right. germanium and all these other combinations. So the fact that we've only had that for 75-ish years, it means that we haven't been able to ask the right questions and look at the right questions. I, I, yeah, that's, that's always been fascinating to me. And again, it speaks to what you said originally of it's the method of learning and the method of teaching that's most important. Because I remember in high school, being um, when my math teacher at some point said, well, you know, the square root of a negative number since, you know, by traditional math. So we come up with something called like, what's the square root of negative 25? It's five I, I stand yeah. for imaginary. And I raised my hand and I said, isn't that just nonsense? Haven't we just, doesn't that just invalidate your system? You know? And he said, John, that only works if you think that we create. So for example, he says, what is the in a um, in a right triangle where the two uh, a and b equals one what's the length of the diagonal well it's the square root of two we all know that we've proved it out but the square root of two is an irrational number how did the ancient greeks measure that they had the length of the triangle right so right. it exists physically but mathematically there is no number that represent right right it's 1.411 whatever right and it's yeah. a, it's an irrational number and that simple example just put that possibility in my head now that the system that got you to this point could be perfectly valid, but it may not be the whole system you're looking at. And, and as all Wendell Holmes said, a mind once expanded to a new concept can never shrink to its old. Exactly. Parameters. So that was a very important lesson to be that one line always stuck in my head. Also, the other line he gave me, and I, I wish I could remember his name now because I would quote him, but I can. He said, all of math rests on two principles. There exists a zero and there exists a one. He goes, every other mathematical law can be derived or can be reduced to those two assumptions, which I thought was, it blew my mind that the most complex math theorem can be boiled down to there exists the assumptions of there's a zero and there's a one and that's it. So and now, let, just, now let's take that into a totally different arena. Yeah, you know, let's do that. Your, your mind expanded that way. So what about when a new concept is introduced in terms of like psychology or sociology or, you know, you try a new food from a different country for the first time and right. all of a sudden you're like, oh man, Indian food's incredible. Right, you know? right, right. So, and what that then does is you have a new idea in your head and... Uh, when you have multiple ideas, that's when you can start getting that cross-pollinization of them. 
and new things come on out from it. I love and it. This is one of the best parts about having a discussion like this, John, is because I've gotten some ideas from you already. Hopefully I've given you and your listeners. A Absolutely. Yeah. But what's going to happen is these ideas stick in the head and then all of a sudden they cross pollinate and there's little baby ideas that can right. then go into completely different tracks. And who knows, maybe because of this interaction, somebody three years from now is going to write an incredible thing. Yeah. Or yeah. they're going to build a company that ends up being a unicorn. Because I, I agree with you. And that's what I love about your, your approach and the fact that you're, because it, it, it definitely sounds to me like you've been the person who's sort of, I don't want to use the word immersed, but I would say surrounded by this concept of, and whether it was experiential in the sense that, you know, being a special needs parent, having uh, your mother go from being a nun to a lay person, for example, and, you know, when you say you migrated uh, from physics to DOD work. I'm not even going to ask about that, but let's say, let's say you went to cryptography or something because you were really good at math or whatever, right? Um, and then, then as you proceed through that, and now you're in business, and uh, part of your business career I looked at was you were an insurance uh, involved in insurance, right? Uh, very successfully, I might add, from what I could tell, right? So uh, I love that because it's a journey. And for me, for example, my journey has always been a love of numbers. So when you look at anything I've ever done in my life, with the possible exception of radio work, um, numbers have been at the core of it, whether it's been looking at population studies or evolutionary studies in biology or becoming a coder or becoming a data analyst or becoming a data scientist, whatever the case may be, numbers, even though different applications have always been at the core of what I find interesting. And I, I look at someone like you and you just have the, the same sort of like you found something that interests you and you kind of it, it kind of evolves. It's an evolution. Right. So you went right. from physics to, you know, you said the only person who knows more about math is a mathematician than a physicist. So you have a love of numbers. You have a love of theory. You have a love of, to some extent, the ethereal. So that be, also could become your Eastern Western philosophy uh, acceptance and the wholeness of that. And, and I love to hear these types of journeys, not that I find the other type of knowledge useless or wrong, you know, those are horrible words, but um, it's just different. And I think the acceptance of people can learn and be productive and enjoy their life by following rules, they could stay within the structure. And like my son loves structure. He loves, you know, the assembly line mentality. He wants a task. He wants to repeat it. He finds comfort in that. Hey, more power to him. It would drive me crazy. I and could not for that work. person. That's yeah. the right environment, exactly. the right career, the right mindset, because given who they are, that's good. Exactly. And he also knows where to push those boundaries where he's ready to try new food, which for right. a lot of autistic kids, sensory right. issues, that can be fairly difficult. Or he wants to experience new sort of music. Or So there are areas on the boundary between chaos and order where he's willing to expand. Right. And exactly. so it, it, to build a good society, we need that entire spectrum of individuals from the hyper uh, you know, regimented to the extremely chaotic. And part of the reason why I impose so much order in a lot of things that I do, the reason why I'm so hyper-disciplined in some ways is because of my ADHD. So mm -hmm. I understand that I have these, I don't wanna call them limitations, but you know, this foible, you know, sure. these, this, these ways. And so 
understanding that, I know that to accomplish certain things, I need to impose these restrictions, these disciplines around it to get what I want. And learning and understanding that is something that's going to take time. It's going to take a bunch of failures, quite frankly. And as individuals explore it and determine where along that spectrum is their set point where they're comfortable and most functional, that's part of growing up and maturing. Yeah. You mentioned something. Talk to me about the, the acceptance of the concept of failure that because I think part of what prevents people from being more entrepreneurial, for example, is that fear of failure. What happens if I fail? What happens if I, I'm not so successful? So we all start as kids and um, as babies, none of us can walk. Right. None of us can crawl, none of us can talk. And what we do, we babble and we make every single sound the human body can make. Mm. And over time, we you know narrow down to what we're hearing. So if you've got a kid who's exposed to both English and Chinese, they're going to have a broader uh, ear and a broader capability to verbalize by having that disparity. So that's why you got kids, expose them to lots of languages early on, because even if they're not speaking it, they're going to have more capability for it. Okay. Then we start learning to try and walk and we fall down and we get up and we fall down and we fall down and we don't stop when we're kids. You know, we just keep going because we want to be able to walk across the floor. We want to be able to do what right. the big people are doing. We want to be able to crawl over and climb up and get the cookie jar. Sure. Okay. So we don't give up until we've succeeded. And what happens though, is we start having a little bit more failures. And instead of having the constant encouragement of our parents, you can do it. Good job, buddy. We've got people. Uh, no. right. right. And the school systems set up. I mean, we grade. And yeah. yes, it's a necessary feedback mechanism, but we learned that, you know, making mistakes is bad, that failure is bad. And so it's getting crushed out of people. And so by the time we're big people, 40% of our population at most still has a growth mindset. And if you look at people who are really willing to take risks and fail and look at it as a feedback mechanism, you're down to like 10%. Hmm. And those 10% either continue to fail miserably in a lot of ways, or they completely outperform. And so on average, they're much more successful, but you have some absolute dramatic failures in there too. And as a side, we're like, oh, we can't allow you know, these failures, but by making it so that people can't fail, you know, right. it used to be that you know, if you did something stupid, you'd get hurt and you'd learn not to do that again. Right. Now they just put bubble wrap around everything and say, <laughs> no, you can't have merry-go-rounds and right. have lawn darts and stuff like that right. because you know seven people died more people died from hammer that year um right. so they basically crushed out the top end trying to protect the bottom end yeah and i've always said it the way humanity as a whole moves forward really is from the people at the tail end of the distribution of the normal distribution right it's it's on average, you know, the so if people don't understand or they're listening to this audio, I'm talking about what's typically referred to as the bell curve, right? That's called yeah. the normal population distribution. And if you think about the hump in the bell, the top of the curve, that's where most people reside, right? That's what you would call yeah, average. Yeah, of the people are within one standard deviation. One standard average. deviation, right. So they're basically average. They're basically average, right. But where society is prodded forward and 
unfortunately held back is from the folks who typically reside at the tail ends, meaning the stuff that's the most flat at the bottom of the curve on either end. Now, if you're looking at it left to right, the people on the left typically are viewed as the ones for the negative effect of what you're talking about in that distribution. Yeah. The folks on the right are what we would consider the positive effect for the distribution. So your geniuses, your your true artists, your your, your the unique people, capabilities, unique capabilities, your outliers, as yeah, Malcolm Gladwell. As Malcolm Gladwell, and I'm glad you mentioned him. I have a question for you regarding him soon coming up. But those outliers on the right side of the curve tend to be your geniuses, your 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 the people that move society forward, that come up with the inventions, that find that miracle cure for cancer and whatnot. Uh, the people on the left might be your your serial killers, your your mass murderers, things of that nature. Well, they're also, you know, that your serial killers very often are incredibly intelligent human beings, too, by the way. Uh, but at that real low end, what's happening is that's the kid who's going to, you know, be too dumb to learn. And so what do we do? Well, we need to protect, you know, society, assuming that Probably. everybody is yeah. in that bottom one percent of uh, common sense, essentially, in a lot of ways. Yeah, whatever and trait so, you're looking for, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we like, you know, put guardrails up, and you know, we put you know bubble wrap on things and all this. And what that does is, instead of necessarily protecting the lowest level, it makes people unaware of the risks in a lot of ways. Mm. It makes them feel too safe, uh, and so they t actually take more risk. And what it does is. You know, in the, as we used to say, you know, stupidity is supposed to hurt. You know, uh, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, they taught you how to change the oil in your car in the manual. Now they tell you don't drink the fluid. Unbelievable. Okay. Unbelievable. Or, you know, so it's that trying to overly protect the, a small group, whether it's 1%, 10%, whatever, is actually damaging the rest of the population. Yeah. And we see this in a lot of different areas. And no, I'm not going to go into the politics around it. But when the 1% on either end are completely moving the needle and not moving the needle in the direction where everybody ends up benefiting from it, that's an issue. So for example, like in New York State in finance, because some people broke the rules, what uh, you know, financial advisors, what they do? They put in so many more rules that the compliance components now take, instead of one to two minutes per client per year, takes hours right. per year per client. And as such, it has created such an administrative burden that the average individual in the state can't get the service that they need within financial services because the restrictions are so great. And guess what? The crooks, the bad guys, are still going to be crooks and bad guys. So it hasn't protected the individual. Right. It has just created levels of bureaucracy and levels of complexity and frustration. And it's actually done harm because of not, because it's interfered with people getting what they need. So we've seen this within the medical space. We've seen this in the right. financial space. We see this in all sorts of other areas is this layering on of complexity and um, documentation to try and protect this small minority or to stop this very small minority who's still going to find ways to do bad things. Yeah, it's it, it really is symptomatic of 
and I don't know if it's we're the victims of our own success as a as a race as a, as, a, as humanity, so to speak. That you know, um, <clears throat> I've listened to Doctor Peterson, Jordan Peterson, talk about this mm-hmm. on on a lot of the subjects that we've covered, actually. And one of the things you know he he always says is like you know to move forward, you do need that entrepreneurial spirit, that risk taking spirit. If you want to maintain the status quo, because what you've got is working well, then you want your conservative types in terms of the personality spectrum, right? Because that's classically true, right? If you've got a big organization, a big company, say you're, um, I don't know, say you're uh, JP Morgan Chase, you know, and and that thing's been making money for years, it's it employs what 10 20,000 people in the US, whatever. You don't want to take chances with that thing, right? It's it's working. It's doing its yep. job. You want people who have a conservative mindset in that structure. Um, Steve Jobs, perfect example, right? I'm trying to build something. I want to have someone carry 10,000 songs in their shirt pocket and be able to enjoy them on the move while they're working yep. out in the gym. So okay. innovators need to ignore yep. the rules because exactly. the rules will keep you where you are and doing what you want. This exactly. is the reason why there were Skunk Works projects. Mm. where big companies would basically have a building off on the side and they put some of their more, you know, open-minded scientists and engineers there and allow them to play around a lot. This is why Google had their uh, Fridays free thing where Friday afternoon, 10% of your time was dedicated on to to go explore and play with different things. And post-it notes from 3M came from basically a skunk words project. It was essentially a mistake. Mm. And yet its first year has made over $2 million and now over 50 billion post-it notes are made every single right. year. Crazy so stuff. So you, yeah. you need to have a little bit of chaos among your order and you need to have a little bit of order among your chaos. I, so I this is that. the reason going to the yin yang symbol, there's a touch of the other color right in the middle of each or else it just spirals completely out of control, whether it's authoritarian or anarchy. Exactly. I love that. I love that. Um, you mentioned Gladwell earlier. Let me throw this out at you. Do you believe in the 10,000 hour rule that kind of became, uh, he, he didn't invent it necessarily, but he popularized it in his book. Outliers, yes. right? So, so decades before he mentioned that my Taekwondo master, Danny Grant taught me something similar that to do a technique properly, you have to do it a hundred times. To understand it, you need to do it a thousand times. And to master it, you need to do it 10,000 times. Mm. So I was exposed to this long, long before that. And so every single day, I still get up and part of my morning habit stack is I'll do at least 100 punches of the first technique that I learned, a horse stand center punch, with each hand every single morning, Mm. which is the reason why I'm still as fast as guys half my age. And in my lifetime, I've now done that over 10 million times. I, have I thrown that oh. much? I don't need to think about it. I have mastered it, okay? Right. And so uh, I was actually on a podcast with James Quantrell. Actually, was it a podcast or was it he and I were just having a discussion? I'm not sure which. And we talked about the difference between mastery and excellence. And it takes like 10,000 hours to truly master something or 10,000 repetitions. But to get you know incredibly good to be excellent at it, it only takes like a thousand times doing something over and over again. Hmm. So you're getting to like 98% as opposed to 99.9% drawing our bell curve out. Okay. So you're mm-hmm. three standard deviations instead of five standard deviations. out. That's still incredibly good. Right. And if you spend one hour a day 
working on something, whether it's learning to play an instrument, martial art, learning a language, um, you know, a particular skill within work, then at the end of three years, you've got a thousand hours. You're pretty excellent. At it. Right. That's one of the reasons why we say that, like in financial services, it takes about a thousand uh, hours to or a thousand repetitions to make million dollar round table. It takes a thousand repetitions to you know be incredibly good as a martial artist to be reaching right. those upper levels. So at the end of of uh, three years, you've got this really great skill or small skill set. But then what you can do is then you can expand from it. You can have something that's similar. So what your son with his uh, body awareness, you know, going from skateboards to rollerblading was not that big of a shift. It was an expansion of the excellence as opposed to trying to become excellent in a completely different field, you know, right. playing piano versus, um, you know, learning Mandarin. Okay, right, right. completely disparate things. So if you can invest a significant amount of consistent time, because consistency breeds excellence right. uh, in certain areas, then you can continue to expand from there. And this is one of the things that I want your listeners, especially those relatively recently out of college to remember, is you were still in the study mode. Don't get out of that mode in the instant that you graduate. I've seen it happen way too often right. where people are like, All right, I'm done. It's like no, you're just starting the journey at this point. You know, it's like you got your black belt and you got this, this entire, you know, future to go, because the average American per pew reads like under two books a year. Hmm. A quarter of Americans post college age read no books a year, none, and and another quarter, one a year. So 50% of our population is not consuming real information, deep thought. Now, do you think that's accurate, though? And I'll, I'll cop to this. I, I, I don't read books anymore. I find that I don't have the time. Do you do audio books? Do you attend but lectures? I was do going to say, yeah, yeah. I spend an inordinate amount of time, though, on YouTube going down what I call learning holes, uh, where mm -hmm. I'll start on a topic and, I'll, you know, for example, quantum physics. I am not a physicist at all. But I started watching a video and it was interesting to me. So then I watched the next thing. Then I watched about the double slit experiments. Then I looked into how the math. And the next thing you know, I've spent 50, 60 hours on YouTube videos. Now, that could be just because I'm that type of learner, you know, where a video is much easier for me to understand. That's like attending a lecture in college, though. Exactly. If yeah. it's something like that, as opposed to watching somebody play video games like my kids like to do, which right. is the equivalent of sitting on the uh uh, couch and watching football on a Sunday afternoon. Right. Yeah. There's, okay? there, but there's, you're literally attending lect lectures. So yeah. You're continuing to grow and expand your knowledge base. Yeah. You're just doing it slightly differently. Yeah. And I, and I, so I would take that book reading thing with a grain of salt if you had any supplemental. See, I would be interested in learning about that supplemental learning. Like, for example, okay, you're not reading books. Are you watching videos? Are you listening to audiobooks? Are you. Yeah. Are you volunteering at tasks that challenge you? For example, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the uh, ad agency world in New York, so I've been exposed. And one of the things, there's a lot of things to hate about ad agencies, to be honest with you. But one of the things that I did like about them was that compared to other structured things, like when I was in the, on Wall Street or the financial world, the freedom from the structured orthodoxy 
was refreshing because most ad, most ad agencies have an entrepreneurial bent to them where they do have the concept of Google time that you mentioned, and they do have the concept of, Hey, we just have to increase ROI. So if you can come up with something weird that nobody ever thought of that increases ROI or ROAS for our clients. And also what's the risk to them? Okay. Exactly. They can, you know, they can lose money or anything, but it's not like they're going to have fines and, you know, the government come in and shut them down. Like, uh, at right. JP Morgan could. Yeah. So there's the risk component to it where it's just the failure risk is not people going to jail. Right. It's the, not right. lawsuits and stuff like that. It's okay, we failed. You know, our hit record was not hit. You know, so it's right. a very creative uh, creation in some ways driven organization. Right. So very, it yeah. tends to more that sort of metrics around it. Yeah. As opposed to the engineering process. Well, yeah, obviously there's a difference if you're a a physicist designing the next uh, solid fuel propellant and you're not paying attention or you haven't done the research properly. People die in that situation, right? Exactly. So, so there's a difference between my campaign didn't drive uh, yeah, consideration. It, it failed somehow. We're not hiring you again. Yeah, versus... and, this, and this thing blew up in the lab, right? And four people died right. because of it. So, right. But, that... you know, one of the things that you were saying there you know, is correct in that it's not necessarily sitting there and reading a traditional physical book. It is consuming and learning new information. Right. Stuff that's going to improve you because you can sit there and consume information about whatever the current uh, you know, TV show is. You can consume information. For example, I know uh, my ex-wife you know, reads an inordinate amount. She reads these bodice rippers. And it's like, okay, these things are formulaic. It follows this path. You know, okay, you, you could literally have a computer program write these things at this right. point. Yeah. Okay, so that compared to like, my son is reading My Side of the Mountain. That's a very different sort of book because there's lessons and insight. You know, right now I'm reading, I'm reading textbooks essentially. In some mm. So the, in terms of not just are you reading or not, but what are you reading? And I expand reading to what are you learning? Because I don't care if you're learning it from lectures, interactions, discussions like this with experts, uh, reading a traditional book, taking a class online, audiobook. I don't care is are you learning and growing that is really the metric that we should be looking at. yeah i love that and i think that's a great point to sort of end our conversation on because i think i've had a great understanding of what your book is and i hope our listeners have as well and oh, i want to keep going i want, I want to, to spend more time well, talking we're kind of limited we'll have you back how's that oh but before, okay that sounds cool before we end i always do this at the end of all of my interviews, which is time for some silly questions. So I'm going to throw these out. I, I never give them out Wait. ahead of time. Feel free to answer as honestly as you can. And if you don't, don't feel limited. If I say, give me one, give me three, if it makes you comfortable. Right. So uh, let's start out with the author, philosopher, or teacher who's had the greatest influence on you. And again, you could give me two or three, if it makes uh, you. In terms of the teacher, it'd probably be my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Foster, mm. who told me, I expect more from you. Okay. That's so, very good. Interesting. Yeah. So she she's the one who made me start reading the New York Times in sixth grade and writing a report every Sunday on you know the various authors that were in there. So she pushed me and champions want to be coached is the old saying. 
she's like, no, you, you can do more. So that, um, in terms of authors, currently I'd have to say Dr. Jordan Peterson because he does one in terms of his analytics around uh, the Western philosophy as a basis of psychological structure for mm -hmm. our environment and our society is something that I've contemplated for years and years. And I'm glad that his next book is actually going to be a real deep dive into that, utilizing other experts uh, right. beyond his area to help integrate with that. So that's actually something that I think is really cool. But in terms of the single author, the most, Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss. Okay. Fantastic. I love that. Uh, given the choice of any genre of movies to either unwind or whatever it is you use movies for, what kind of genre would you pick from? Would it be comedy, horror, documentary, romance, action? What 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 would you say? Like, hey, I'm I'm gonna binge watch something this weekend. So what what genre of movies would you binge from? It would either have to be straight up action, you know, like Mar Marvel Comics. I'm a big Marvel fan, and you can see all my Thor stuff there. Yes, I just <laughs> excellent. Yeah, Love and Thunder twice. <laughs> Loved it. Um, or just like really bad comedy, like Dumb and Dumber, Beavis and Butthead do America. You know, just absolutely stupid that makes you laugh uncontrollably. I, I so love it's got to be one of the two. I've literally just bought the Paramount Plus Network just to see the Beavis and Butthead movie. That, that, I'm going to do it. the same thing just so I can see it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> a plug out the Paramount Plus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. All right, and then the final question, given your upbringing and your bio, favorite New York Yankee player of all time? It's got to be Mariano Rivera. Mariano. No, so during the you know 90s, during the dominant dynasty, you know, everybody's like, you know, Derek Jeter and all this. But I mean, Mo Rivera is the only unanimous choice yes. ever. He completely redefined it. And here's one of the things that people don't realize. You know, Mariano Rivera it was usually the second best closer in the league for 15 years in a row. And whoever was number one, whether it was Papelbon or, you know, uh, Franco at one point or anything, they'd mm -hmm. rotate. But Mo was always number two statistically, year after year after year after year for 15 plus years. But the other thing is that when he'd go to the All-Star game, he would be sitting there in the dugout, talking to opposing pitchers, teaching them his cutter, mm. teaching him his knowledge, giving his insight to people that were going to use it against him. Because he believed that his cutter was a gift from God. And so he had an obligation to share his knowledge with other individuals. Right. And so that sort of mindset combined with the humility and resilience that he exhibited, that is one of the reasons why Mariana Rivera will always be the ultimate class act. And from all the 90s players I absolutely love, he is the one. I love that, both the selection and the reason why. I love that. Everyone, Joe Templin, thank you very much for joining us once again. Go get Joe's book, Everyday Excellence, which is available on Amazon.com. Hold that book up there, Joe. Excellent. And uh, you can also uh, go to his companion site for the book, EverydayExcellence.com. That's Everyday-Excellence.com. Joe, thank you for joining us on The Big Questions with Big John. Big John, thank you. Be excellent and grow today. I will certainly do that. Bye-bye, everyone.